Anyone wearing, who's wearing flip-flops tonight just by raise of, isn't it amazing to be able to toes, can see fresh air again, you know, just kind of a cool feeling. Um, It's easy to talk about life. It's easy to talk about life. Like, especially as it pertains to your little sphere, your little universe. It's, it's one of the easiest things for us to do, to talk about life. It maybe begins with, like, some, like current events, for instance, right? Uh, the fact that Albert Pujols is going to be a Chicago Cub would be one thing that is on many of your conversational pieces. Um, the fact that Justin Bieber didn't win artist, uh, New Artist of the Year, I know, uh, as many of you have lo- has lost sleep over. Uh, Esperanza Man- Mandela, I think, won it. Um, Many of us have heard of her. Was that? I, I don't think that was her name. Uh, but current events, um, many of you enjoy talking about uh, just all the random stuff of your day. Like, it's, it's the very easiest thing for us uh, to talk about. It's why shows like Oprah, Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz, and any other show that Oprah started, um, it, it's like the whole premise is like, hey, let's just gather and talk about life. And it draws us in because we're interested because we, too, want to talk about life. It's easy for us, but I have noticed that there's a difference in the genders. Um, females talk about life a little bit differently than males do. Um, I've overheard some conversations in my household, not mentioning any names, where um, a female in my household will be talking to another female in someone else's household, and it's so cute, it's hilarious. They'll say something like, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. And then they'll literally go through their entire day, like, step by step, you know? And then we did this, and then the kids did this, and then we, you know, and it's just, it's, it's super, super cute. And I have to give my wife props, though she's not in here right now. Uh, tomorrow's her birthday, so if you see her, uh, make sure you wish her a happy birthday. Um, but girls, girls do that differently. They, can, they just can gab about a lot of things, and, and they feel very connected. Guys, we just work a little bit different. Uh, we'll call up someone to talk about life, and it's like, hey, dude, what's up? Hey, dude, what's up? All right, man, we'll see you later. And we feel like, and we feel completely connected, you know? Like, we feel like we've caught up. And that pretty much sums it up for us. Um, it's, it's easy for us to talk about life. Uh, there she is, my wife, birthday tomorrow. Can you guys just give it up for her? I can give a shout out to my wife. Thank you. I was just complimenting you on your uh, communication skills, honey. Promise. Um, it's easy to talk about life. But he- here's the dangerous thing. The dangerous thing is when that transfers to the church. And you're like, hold on a second, but, but like we're living beings. And so to not talk about life is... Like you're saying dangerous? Well, I'm not saying that talking about life is dangerous. I'm saying that when it dominates our conversation, it becomes dangerous. When these become communities where it's like, hey, let's, let's come together. Let's talk about life. Like it's Oprah, or Dr. Phil, or Dr. L- come on, let's just come together. We'll just wrestle with where everyone's at and we'll talk about life. And then we'll all leave and our lives will surely be changed. It's a dangerous place for us as a church community to ever get to a point where each other is driving the conversation. You see what I'm saying? Though if you were to admit, deep down inside, it's what some of you long for. If I could just show up in a church setting and it truly connect with me and my heart and my desires first, primarily, that's when I'm truly satisfied. It's dangerous. And thankfully for us, we just started studying a book called Hebrews. Life primarily hasn't been the strategy of the writer of Hebrews, okay? We've said a few things about the book so far. Uh, First of all, the date, anyone? The date, we don't know. The author, anyone? We don't know. But what we do know about Hebrews is that it's written to Jewish Christians, which will come to play huge tonight. The writer of Hebrews, as you remember, 
didn't say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, and hey, hey, let's, let's just come and gather and let's talk about life, everyone. Who's reading this letter? How are things? How's your mom? Like, you know, how's everyone? How, what, what are the current events? He drives straight to one interesting idea, and that's the person of Christ. No life rhetoric, none of that. It's Jesus, okay? And I want to show you the first thing in the first three verses we saw him make seven statements about Christ. Jesus is the heir of all things. Everything was created through Jesus. Jesus embodies the glory of God. Jesus reveals the character of God. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus is the purifier of sin. Jesus sits at the right hand of God. That's where he begins. This powerful monologue of the depth of Jesus. What Jesus is, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus did. Unbelievable stuff. Then last week... Verses 4 through 14, we studied how Jesus is superior to angels, okay? We talked about angels being both messengers and ministers biblically. But we saw these things about the, we, the reason why he's superior to angels. Next slide was this. He's superior to angels because he's the son of God. Angels worship him because of his supreme nature, his eternal existence, and his place of honor at the right hand of God. So if you thought that the Bible was just all this practical dialogue where you read it and you open it and it's just like, okay, and here's, it's like the gospel becomes some nice warm blanket, right? And you guys know what I'm talking about. You have that blanket, don't you? I know my kids do like that one blanket that just, it doesn't, like if they don't have that blanket, the world will end, you know? And, and you have that as well. And now we're completely, is everything okay back there? We, we good? Okay. All right. This, okay, thank you. That kind of became a cozy blanket there for us, didn't it? That darkness there? Yeah. So that's not the strategy of the writer of Hebrews. Jesus. Jesus is. He's powerful. He's good. But after a whole section of the beauty of Christ, then he throws in this four-section piece about life. Now, why he does it this way, that's going to be the driving point of our whole evening together. Why he spends a chapter on Jesus and now these four verses on life. We're going to talk about all that. So I want you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4. When one of you get our page number of our pew Bible there. What's the number there, my sister? What's the number? 867 is the page number. 861. Okay. Thank you. Hooked on phonics numbers version. Worked for me. Okay. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Let's read all four verses, and then we're going to dive headfirst into this. Verse 1, Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels, there they are again, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape... If we neglect such a great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Powerful text. Some of you know, some of you don't, but the Bible is written in multiple languages. The Old Testament primarily in this language called Hebrew. There's some Aramaic sections as well of the Old Testament. The New Testament primarily, anyone? Greek. There's some other, uh, a few bits and uh, spatterings of other things. But the beauty of the Greek language, which Hebrews was written in, 
is that it holds to it so much depth that often in the English doesn't quite render quite right. And so if you ever wanted to be a Greek scholar tonight, tonight, uh, we're going to look at five specific Greek words as we flow through this. But let's begin here with uh, verse number one. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Therefore, that's the connection piece of this whole thing. The power of Christ, the words of Christ, the person of Christ. Here's who Jesus is through the whole chapter 1. Therefore, you see? All that we're getting ready to read. Remember, the Bible wasn't written with numbers on it, right? The readers didn't put like, okay, and now chapter 2, verse 1. Those were added later. So this is one continuous thought. The power of Christ, here's who Jesus is. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Well, if you're uh, studying this on your own and you're using Blue Letter Bible, which is a great Greek resource for those of you that study, please study, all right? The first a word that I'm really interested in is the word attention. Now, I phonetically spelled it out here so you can write this and uh, wow your friends later, uh, but the word, the Greek word here for attention is praseho, okay? Everyone say that with me, praseho, all right? Okay, that, that was three of us. One more time, praseho, all right? Now, this Greek word is a nautical term. I've longed to say that in a sermon at one point, and I just, I just moneyed it, right? Nautical. It means like boats and ships and stuff, okay? It's a nautical term. And here's what it literally means. It means to bring the ship in to harbor that you're paying so close attention to it because my dad has a lake house, and it's beautiful, it's amazing, and uh, he has a very powerful speedboat that we all enjoy. And the thing that makes me the most nervous, and first of all, my dad is he's very protective of his things. And the thing that makes me most nervous is when I have to park the thing, okay? I don't know if you've ever had to park a boat before, okay? But this is one of the most, like, nerve-wracking pieces, especially when your father is, like, sitting on his deck, like, watching the whole thing, you know? So I come in with his X amount of $1,000 boat, and it is, like, if you don't pay close attention, like, that boat is hitting a dock, a small child, something, you know what I'm saying? Like, you have to... You have to gear that thing in and put it exactly right because the water's moving, the wind's coming, there's ducks in the way. This is the kind of thought that, that, it, that he's saying here, right? He's just putting a boat exactly into harbor, paying very close attention, fraseho, all right? Now the next Greek word I want to understand, lest we drift away from it, is drift. Uh, the Greek word here is parareo, Everyone? Parareo, well done, okay? Now this word literally means to slip by. It, it's like this image. It's like as the ring would like slip off of, of a finger. But it's more than that. It's also a nautical term. And it implies that the sailor or the person at the helm of the ship fell asleep. And the water and the current just caused them to, to drift. A quick story. Um, when I was in college, I uh, decided that we needed to go on an adventure. I'm a big adventurer, a big voyager. And so when you want adventure, you go to Walmart. And so we, we went to Walmart. So we went to Walmart when I was in college. And me and my buddy were down in Florida on spring break. And uh, we see this uh, Walmart raft that was $20 and it had, came with two oars. And so, so we decided to purchase this Walmart raft. And as we're talking about it together, we're like, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to uh, put this raft in the ocean and... And bring a video camera out in the ocean with us in this Walmart raft and go and venture in the ocean together in this raft. 
And so uh, we blow the thing up, and the first thing that you realize is this raft is much smaller than we first anticipated. You know what I'm saying? Like this raft, two small children would be a, an adventure just putting them in it, but it's two large males, okay? Um, but nonetheless, we're excited about the venture. So we uh, go out onto the beach, and everyone's looking at us strangely because, you know, we're, first of all, I'm very pale skin, and so I cake on the sunscreen, right? And, and we, put our, uh, we put our minnow there in the water, right? And uh, these two oars that are about this size. We got the video camera in a plastic bag to protect from the ocean water, as, as you know it would. And, um, and, and we set sail. Um, well, the thing about setting sail with two big men in a small raft uh, with two small oars is that things don't go too well, and, like instantaneously. You got the waves coming in, and everyone's laughing at you, and so you're dealing with nerves and the, the current and all these other things. But then what, what happened was we found ourselves on the other side of the waves, like we made it. So here we are, two large males in a very small raft, feeling very awkward, but we're, we're over the waves. Um, then something very interesting started to happen. We started to drift. And, and it's weird because, like, you would think, like, the current pushes you in. I don't know what kind of El Nino kind of current was working in the ocean this day. But La Nina something, I mean, it was, it was literally taking us out. Like, so we're, like, kind of, you know, this is a happy-go-lucky time. We're like, hey, dude, this is crazy. And we're taking footage. You know, this is awesome. And then pretty soon, we're literally, like, a quarter of a mile away from the beach. And it was about that point, I'm like, dude, I, what, like, how are we going to do this, bro? Like, I ain't swimming. Like, you know, Jaws is underneath us right now. <laughs> going to bite my face off. Like, I'm not, I'm no way I'm getting in that water, right? And so pretty soon, like, we keep drifting out. And this drift, it, it, it completely incapacitates. I mean, we, we feel completely helpless. We drift farther and farther. And we are, we literally think that our life is over. My wife um, and this other guy's fiancé were there. They're freaking out. They, you know, they don't know where we are. And we're literally, some estimations, because a boat comes by, like half a mile to three-quarters of a mile away from the, from the shore in this little raft. There, at one point, dolphins come by. You think, oh, that's pretty. No, I think in my mind, if there's a dolphin, there's a bigger fish. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, we want to eat Shamu or that was wrong. Flipper, flipper. There we go. So finally, we hail on this boat. And, like, we look so awkward. They don't even let us come in their boat. They just throw us a rope and drag us all the way in, you know? <laughs> Unbelievable thing. But I want to tell you this. The feeling of drifting is no fun. The feeling of slipping away, you feel uncontrolled. Like, how can I get this back? And what the writer of Hebrews says here is, we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Now, I believe here because this is one continuous thought that he is talking to Jewish Christians still. I think that shifts a little bit here later, but I think he's still talking to Christians. So some people have asked me often, like, so what, do you, what does Matthias believe about once saved, always saved? Is, is the drifting here that idea that you can somehow be in Christ and then like one day renounce him? And what we've taught previously is this concept of if saved, always saved. If you are in fact God's child, you can't not be God's child. We are at a marriage retreat and the speaker uh, brilliantly said, John Ryan, he said, you can't break a covenant you didn't start. This beautiful way of saying if saved, always saved. God starts the covenant and you can't break anything that he begins. So this isn't talking about losing your salvation. Rather, it's talking about drifting what does he say? Pay close attention to what you have heard. Connected by the word what? The first word of the verse one. What? Therefore, the words of Christ. 
Christians in here, have you ever felt this? Where at one point in time you felt so connected to the words of Jesus, they were your literal bread. You were feeding from them. They were your words of life. You connected with them. You literally were clinging to it. And then all of a sudden, like you, you felt it kind of start to slip, to slip away. The grip lessened and loosened, and you found yourself drifting. Not by raise of hand at all, but any drifters here tonight, right? Like you started out and things were so passionate about the words of Christ. You were so excited about what God was doing all around you. You saw God changing lives. You held his word tight. And then as time has gone on, you've put the scripture and the words of Jesus in some compartment in your life. You haven't held it as this true, life-giving, breath-giving book. The Spirit empowering you and you've drifted. But the scripture uh, provides some hope. He says, remember what you've heard. Pay close attention to the words and the person of Jesus. That's your key. Why? Uh, Put up that first slide again for me, Andrew. Put up the very first slide that we used tonight. Because the concept is, if you get these, these seven things and more about Jesus, if you remember that this is the Christ as a Christian, as a follower, then how can you not long to cling to his words if you really believe he's the heir of all things, all-powerful, and all of these concepts that the scripture talks about? Any drifters here tonight? The Bible says to you, who are drifting, feeling out of control, lost at sea. Cling to the words of Jesus. People ask me all the time, like, so I'm feeling complacent and completely distant from God. Read the Bible because it breathes of the character of God. And as a Christian, when you start reading of the character of God, what I've found in my life is it awakens my heart. But so many Christians find themselves drifting, sitting in their depression because that becomes their, as we talked about previously, their life. Are you with me, church? All right. Now, verse 2. Put up verse 2 here for me. Uh, Actually, go go back to verse 1 one more time. I just want to, that last slide, I just want to sum this up. Therefore, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, fall away from it, loosen our grip. Verse 2. Here we go. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, dot, dot, dot. Uh, This is kind of confusing, okay? Can we work together? Now, in Jewish tradition, there was this connection with angels and the law. In other words, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and receives the law from God. But in ancient Jewish tradition, the angels were present there. Like we said last week, the Jews are reaching out for something in the cosmos to bridge this gap between themselves and God. And so the angels were a convenient fix. They're cosmic, they fly, like, you know, they must be our mediator, right? Well, I want to show you briefly what we're talking about here. Four times, at least in the scripture, where we see angels around Mount Sinai. Proving something reliable. So here's the first one. Deuteronomy 33. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai 
and dawned there Sarah upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the, and here's the reference, the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at the right hand. So this first reference, Mount Sinai, Moses, flaming ones. Here we go. Next, uh, from Psalm 67, uh, verse 17. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is coming among them. Sinai is now the sanctuary. Another reference to angels somehow being a part of this. Next slide, Acts 7. So now a New Testament mention in verse 38. This is the one who is with the congregation in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Again, somehow these angels playing a part in the last mention here in Acts 7.53. You who received, and this is the most explicit, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So there's this peace somehow mysteriously that angels play in the law at Moses a little bit confusing but what does it mean put back up verse 2 put back up verse 2 for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable here's what he's saying the angels played a part in giving the law to Moses and that law has proved to be reliable fair enough why and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution that's why much explaining to do there, okay? So let's work through it. Some more Greek. You guys ready? The first a Greek word I want to know is transgression. It wouldn't make a good tattoo, I promise. Um, but the Greek word here is parabasis, everyone. Parabasis, okay? Now, transgression means a going over, a disregarding, or a, a violating. It's like this. There's a line that's drawn in the sand. A transgression is an active sin, It's a sin of commission. It's a sin of crossing the line. You know what to do, and yet you do something else. That's a transgression, okay? So, the angels brought some message. It was proved reliable because every transgression, okay, was was, uh, received just retribution. We'll explain the rest of this here in a second. Disobedience, okay? You like the green there? I love it. Parakae, everyone? Parakae is the Greek word. And it means, and I just threw this in because this is something my grandma would say, hearing amiss. You guys like that, amiss? Just start throwing that in your vocabulary. People will think you're awesome. I mean, that's just, if you say amiss, people just think you're awesome. That's what I've learned, right? Now, this, this kind of disobedience is this. It's like hands over the ears. I, I'm, like, I know you're speaking, but I don't want to listen. Uh, if you ever have kids, they, they once in a while will play this move. Right, like, I can't hear you, you can say whatever you want, but if I don't hear you, then I'm not in the wrong. And that's exactly what disobedience is. It's knowing what you should do, but not doing it. It's a sin of omission, whereas transgression is the sin of commission. Are you with me? So biblically, these angels bring the law, and every transgression or or disobedience received a just retribution. Retribution. Any takers? Next slide. It means this. Um, sorry, I didn't change the color there. This one's a doozy. Mesfa pade seo. Okay? I won't even say that again. Sorry. But, but it means payment of wages due. So, the angels brought the law. Had something to do with bringing the law. And every sin of disobedience and transgression received a just penalty. What was that penalty? 
Well, for the Jews, it often wasn't pretty. Can I show you a couple examples here? First slide here. This is uh, in Exodus 21. When an ox gores a man, um, this, is a, this, is a, this would make a great kid's book here, right? Like this is the ox and the, and the man. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, uh, the ox shall be stoned, which, you know, I'm sure all kinds of animal rights activists would have something to say about that nowadays. And its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has, uh, has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. Every Jew under this. Okay? Your animal kills someone, and you know that they've been prone to it, you die too. This is very clear in Scripture, but this isn't the only thing. The Sabbath they took very seriously. Uh, put up this next slide, Numbers 15. Uh, when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, as you do. You just run around and gather sticks. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And I love this because Moses is a little bit confused. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. It's like, man, this guy's gathering sticks on the Sabbath. What are we to do? And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones. Um, I, I appreciate the emphasis there. Stone him to death with stones, you know, as opposed to pixie sticks or something else, right? As the Lord commanded Moses. Now listen, this is all throughout the Old Testament. The angels had something to do with the law. The law is proved reliable. It's proved true. How do we know? Because when someone disobeyed the law, guess what happened? Penalty. So God is affirming the fact that whatever the angels said and in, in to do with the law, it was proven true because there was penalty. Are we together in this? I want you to understand this because it's, it's key to verse 3. We together. Okay? Now, look at verse 3 in your scriptures. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The ancient writers, Josephus and on back in the biblical times, had this a great method of writing. It was simply called lesser to greater. They would use a lesser argument to make the greater more impactful. Do you see what he's done here? The angels bring the law. It's proved reliable because God punishes those who don't follow it. And Jesus, who I've talked about the entire first chapter, comes to provide a great salvation. How much more will the punishment, will the reality be for those people who neglect that great salvation? You see what he does here? He's using angels to say, if people have the audacity to deny the reality of Christ, and the angels were able to play this role in the Old Testament, how much greater then if they neglect this great salvation? Now to neglect here is uh, the Greek word amaleo, and it means to be careless of. So for the non-Christian here, first, what the scripture means is this. 
is if you don't believe in Christ, let me explain more what I mean. If you don't have relationship with Jesus, in other words, you don't trust him, you don't believe that his claims about himself are true, maybe you've been burned by some individual or the church and it's caused you to run away, whatever the case may be for you, you don't have relationship with Christ, you've never believed that his death on a cross, the blood spilt, that that, uh, that that blood can somehow be forgiving of all of your transgressions or disobedience, for those of you that haven't believed that you've neglected this great salvation and um people ask all the time they're like man you know you seem you always get fired up but you guys ever preach like you know brimstone and what's the other word fire and brimstone like you ever all we do is teach the scripture And, and in this case i have to just be vulnerable with you all and say this if any of you any of us Neglect the opportunity to know Jesus, to to taste this great salvation, which salvation is literally being saved from this death that you are destined to because God sees the lens of your disobedience and transgressions as it really is, distanced from him. That the penalty that he describes here is eternity away from him. And not just eternity away from him in some fairy tale land where you can just do whatever you want, but in, in hell. Scripture describes hell as this place of eternal fire. It describes hell as this place where uh, the worm doesn't burn. It's such a great salvation. And if after hearing the beauty of Jesus, you continue to neglect it, you treat it as careless. Maybe one day when my, I have kids, or maybe one day when I, God will never forgive all that I've done. Listen, you don't understand the beauty of the gospel. Hell is a certain reality, my friends. You saw those scriptures in the Old Testament? You don't think God will hold true his word? And his word says, if you do not believe in me, I will separate the sheep from the goats. It's a clear, true, biblical reality. And I share all this in tremendous love for all of you tonight. Right? It's not come to Jesus or go to hell. But it's literally, my friends, if you don't trust in Christ, hell is a certain reality for you. Neglecting the great salvation. And the writer here makes it clear by using this angel analogy. Now to the Christian, to the drifter, we have, and I include myself, the audacity to get careless with this great salvation. We have the, the audacity to speak of the words of Christ on our lips and yet take it for granted. To look at his sacrifices is just some like piddly thing that his life really didn't mean anything that I can continue and claim Jesus and live however we want. It's making a mockery of the gospel, Christian. Some of you in here neglecting it. This great salvation, the beauty of Christ, and you're drifting and allowing the drift to determine your religion. The message of the writer of Hebrews is, remember what he said. Remember who he is. This is a great salvation, isn't it, church? 
It's amazing. He saved us from the pit, took us out of the pit of destruction, of death, of pending reality, and has given us something new, a new life, a new hope in himself, in Christ. It's a great salvation. And so the no escape for the Christian is a warning. Stop being so careless with your relationship with Jesus. This Jesus issue demands a response. That's why he spends an entire chapter on the person of Christ. You have to respond. And all of you walking in have responded in a a particular way. Here's how I respond to Jesus. I don't believe or I'll do whatever I want or I do believe and this is Jesus demands a response. Are you with me, church? No more neglecting. Cherish it. Love what he's done for you. Give him thanks. And then he confirms it here in the middle of verse 3 through verse 4 with four ways that he himself has affirmed this great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Remember what we've taught. The writer of Hebrews wasn't around. This is a second generation Christian. Okay, So the Lord attested to this same reality And the apostles, those who heard the message of Jesus, have attested to it as well. And then in verse 4, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the apostles in Acts especially are experiencing all kinds of miraculous things as the gospel is pressing forward. And it's God's way of affirming The reality of the apostles being equipped by the Holy Spirit. These guys are legit. These guys aren't just saying God is good all the time and all the time God is good. And I'm going to go ahead of them and I'm going to perform some crazy miracles that you would know that there's something different now in these men. And one of my favorite stories, Peter goes from denying the name of Jesus to a little servant girl. And 50 days later, he's literally telling someone in the name of Jesus, walk. The biggest transformation you could ever see in a man because of the empowerment of the Spirit. And the last testimony here is, is that he'd, he'd done all this through the distribution. The, uh, all these gifts were distributed according to his will. He accomplished his plan and his will by distributing all this. Unbelievable text. But we still haven't answered our question, have we? Remember the question? So why? Cool text. We understand angels and talked about hell tonight, all these themes. But why spend an entire chapter on Jesus and then all of a sudden bring in life? A Jew, all of their life, has been told in several different ways, this is how you live. This is the law. This is what life looks like. And all of their life, all of those laws weigh on the shoulders of a Jew. Don't do this. Do this. We saw some of them on the screen earlier. This law just weighs several laws added about the Sabbath. I mean, thousands and thousands of laws, literally. There's entire sections of Scripture just given to the law. It's not just the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament like we often think of. There's a litany of laws, my friends. And so would you, all your life, listen, all your life, 
all weighed down by the law, the law, the law. I do this. I guess this is, listen, my life. And so when Jesus comes, and remember, this is written to Jewish Christians. These Jewish Christians are struggling releasing the old way, releasing the old law, and adhering to this new way, and the new way is Jesus. They're struggling with it. Listen, if you've been burdened all your life, law, 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 and then all of a sudden Jesus comes in, and you receive Jesus, you begin a relationship with Jesus, let me tell you, one of your first struggles will see Jesus as just some additive. Oh, okay, so I've been living the law and making sacrifice through the high priest. Oh, but Jesus' death, this is good. So now like Jesus is, is just this additive for me now. This is a good answer. We had a problem, and now Jesus comes in. It, it's, it's like life plus Jesus. That's what your big struggle would be as a Jew. I, I, I'm calling it salt shaker doctrine. You like salt? Anyone like salt? Yeah? Shamefully, right? Your life in a salt shaker. Here's the concept. Well, I, I, need, like I need some help today. But, but then you can set it back on the table and push it. Like in fact, you pass it around the table, right? Or man, today I'm just, I'm really joyous. So God, can we just commune a little bit? Or God, I really need an answer to this. Or God, I'm really struggling. These Jews were struggling with Christ just being this convenient puzzle piece answer Life plus Jesus. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate is Jesus is life. You you don't understand. You're, You're missing it. All of your days of trying to measure up, all of your days of seeing your life plus Jesus, listen, those are done. In fact, your life is done. Jesus is life. Why? Because he lived the life that you should have and couldn't have lived. He did it perfectly. He is life. Your life is no more. And these Jewish Christians find themselves in this tough tension of, I know, but, but he's just sure, sure and I preservative. I mean, I'll just add a little Jesus when it's convenient for me or when my friends are looking or when I have an opportunity to serve, but then I can put him back on the table and push him aside to my friends. Like, that's, we'll just do that with Christ. But the writer of Hebrews is, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus is all powerful. He's heir of all things. He's creator. You don't understand. Jesus is life. He said in himself, I am the way, the truth, and the, come on, the life. If Jesus then is life, and if releasing this concept of life plus Christ is an abomination to the gospel, then what does that mean for us? And if you feel like right now it's, you're, you're, you're just living and you just add a pinch of Jesus whenever it's nice. Right? Like, like this, for instance. Like this suffices for some need in your heart just to get a little bit of a, just a little bit, just a little, little taste, a little touch of Christ. That'll get me through the week. You're not understanding the concept. You're still, listen, you're still trying to measure up. And the whole point of Jesus being alive is that he measured up. He was perfect. 
He is the fulfillment of life. And so now you don't have to spend your life trying to add Christ into it. You can now spend your life resigning to the power of Christ. Let me say it this way. The more you realize that Jesus is life, the more you say, then my life is yours. The more you realize that Jesus is life, the more you say, then my life is yours. And not because by you sacrificing your life that that's going to mean something. But for those of us in here that understand that Jesus is life, we've grasped a particular concept, and that's this. God, empower me to live like your son Jesus. And when my deeds are righteous, help me deflect the glory to Christ. That's what sacrificial I've given my life away is. It's not righteous deeds so people look at me and say, man, that Mark guy, he sure is, man. You know, that dude's fired up about the Lord. No, no, don't see me. Deflect the glory to the power of Jesus. That is true belief of Jesus is life. But the drifters, many of you here, Jesus is just an additive, a convenient preservative, a little dash here and a little dose there. And what the writer of Hebrews tells you, my friends, is you better pay close careful attention to the words of Christ and not take the gospel carelessly. And for those that find yourselves embracing this Jesus is life mentality, here's your prayer. God, create in me a heart that longs to live like you and when others see righteousness because of you, Receive the glory. Take it away from me. Make me incapable of receiving glory for myself. That is what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross. What does he say? Deny yourself and follow me. So for the Christians, where are you at tonight? Is it life plus Jesus or Jesus is life? The best example that we have, as the writer of Hebrews has already embraced, is the person of Christ himself. Listen. Who denied himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in a meal, celebrating who he is as the person, that one day, 2,000 years later, you and I could be in the same room and celebrate. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. For those neglecting salvation, this is your only hope. The broken body of Christ. Forgiveness sufficient. Grace sufficient for your sins. Receive it. Trust in it. This is my body broken for you. And then he held up the cup as a picture of sacrifice and obedience. And he says, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this, what's the word? Remember me. We take communion 
for believers in Jesus by intention, by pulling off a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup. And I want to encourage all of you tonight that this walk, that this meal is about remembering the person of Christ, embracing your call to deny yourself and deflect the glory and receive the life that is promised in Jesus. Apart from Christ, you have no life. There is no hope. You are destined to death. That's the truth. But with Christ, the beauty of life, here and now, as we await the life to come, repent, remember, and be restored. Let's pray together. God, I I just confess my own sin. The ways that I have put you on a table just to grab you when it's convenient. God, forgive me of those days. Forgive my sin, forgive my failings, and God, forgive us, receive our repentance, God, tonight. God, I pray that you aren't just some mantle, uh, some uh, ornament on a mantle, God, but rather I pray that you become for us our very life. God, help us receive and trust that through you there is life, and not just a, and not a burdened life, but the, a joyous life. The best life possible is through you, God. So I pray, Father, that tonight as we respond in this meal, that you would put in our minds and in our hearts thoughts of you. And that for the drifters in the room, that they would cling again to the great words of hope. Let's stand and respond.